Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues, have conversations with foreign affairs thought leaders and newsmakers, and give you the context you need to understand the world today. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to learn more. And now on with the show. The International Criminal Court is likely to open an investigation into alleged crimes against humanity and war crimes committed in Afghanistan. Much of the focus of the investigation would be crimes committed by the Taliban, but actions by Americans could also come under scrutiny. This raises the real prospect of the first collision between Americans and the International Criminal Court. On the line with me to discuss the implications of this probable ICC probe of the Afghanistan conflict is Mark Kirsten. He is a fellow at the Monk School of Global Affairs at the University of Toronto and one of my favorite go-to ICC experts. We kick off discussing the circumstances around this ICC investigation, and that segues into a conversation about the history of U.S.-ICC relations, and we have a broader discussion about the current work of the ICC around the world and why many of its cases seem to be faltering right now. We recorded this conversation several weeks ago, not long after John Bolton issued a stern warning against the International Criminal Court, as it seemed more and more likely that the ICC was in fact going to open an investigation into Afghanistan. So the prospect of uh, that potential investigation still looms large. By the time you're listening to this, that investigation may have already been opened, So I do think this conversation will provide some really good context for understanding, one, what that investigation is all about, and two, how it may impact Americans. Before we begin, I want to say a special thank you to those of you who are leaving reviews of the show on iTunes. Thank you very much. I also want to give a special thank you from the bottom of my heart to those of you who are premium subscribers to the show. I don't think I plug the premium subscription service as often as I should, but with premium subscriptions to the podcast comes special rewards like bonus episodes, uh, a special list of individuals to follow on Twitter and Instagram, and access to my daily morning news clips service. This is a, a roundup I put together every single morning. It goes out to mostly people who work in, in global development and international relations, but uh, this morning news clip service can be yours, complimentary, if you become a premium subscriber to the show. If you have any questions about how to become a premium subscriber, just uh, send me an email. Otherwise, just go to globaldispatchespodcast.com and click on the Become a Premium Subscriber button. All right. Thank you all. And now here is my conversation with Mark Kirsten. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. 
Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Well, I think the biggest thing, obviously, to know is that an investigation into alleged war crimes and crimes against humanity committed in Afghanistan is imminent. And that's obviously created a lot of discussion in global justice and international relations and diplomatic worlds um, for one reason in particular, which is that the ICC prosecutor has signaled that within the context of this investigation, she will investigate alleged war crimes and crimes against humanity committed by the CIA and U.S. forces. So that's gotten a lot of attention, obviously, because of the sense that the prevalent sense that uh, Western states are somehow not held to account for their alleged crimes. Uh, It's gotten a lot of attention because Afghanistan has very much been a blind spot for justice and accountability generally. Um, It's gotten a lot of attention because this would be a very significant investigation outside of Africa. And as many people know, the the vast majority of investigations that the ICC has conducted to date have been on the African continent. So it kind of, um, in some ways, the, uh, the Afghanistan investigation pulls together a lot of the most dramatic and interesting threads uh, in the international criminal justice world. And we'll talk, through, gets, those. Uh, yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll yeah, talk yeah. through those, but it's worth pointing out. So you said that this, this decision by a, uh, to, to investigate is imminent. And, and you know, by the time people are listening to this, this decision might have already been made. And it would be a ruling by a pretrial chamber in, at the ICC that would sort of basically approve an investigation. Is that right? Like procedurally? Yeah, exactly. So Afghanistan has been under what is called preliminary examination for a decade or so which means that the prosecutor believes that there's enough grounds to explore whether the court has jurisdiction, whether the crimes are sufficiently grave, whether there's judicial activity on the ground that would kind of preclude the ICC from investigating because it only investigates and prosecutes when uh, the state in question is either, you know, kind of unwilling and unable or just flat out isn't doing this. Uh, So for about 10 years uh, the the ICC office of the of uh, the prosecutor has been mulling this over, and earlier this year, I believe, or maybe it was late last year, she made the decision to request judges in the pretrial chamber of the ICC uh, to allow her to open an official investigation, and she can do that because. Afghanistan is a state party to the International Criminal Court, which is actually something a lot of people don't really realize because I think there's a sense that, oh, given the conflict and the involvement of states, uh, including the United States, in the conflict in Afghanistan, why would the country make itself vulnerable to prosecutions or investigations by the ICC? But it is, in fact, a member state of the court. Um, It has not requested that the ICC investigate it, so the prosecutor, kind of upon her own volition, has requested this investigation to be opened. Mm. And as I mentioned before, we expect, uh, and the U.S. government has said that it expects uh, that this decision to officially open this investigation, again, not just into uh, 
alleged abuses by the U.S., but the Taliban, Afghan forces, and I think it's important to actually really stress that those are likely to take uh, the lion's share of the attention of any investigation, the, the alleged crimes by the Afghan, uh, Afghan authorities and army, and especially the Taliban, not the U.S., which will mm-hmm. probably be a very small section. Uh, but yeah, that decision is imminent, and the but, U.S. But, is... Yeah, but nonetheless, yeah. because Afghanistan is a member of the Rome Statute, the treaty that created the International Criminal Court, war crimes and crimes against humanity committed on its territory, even by nationals of... Um, States that are not party to the treaty, like the United States, uh, could still be prosecuted. So Americans could see some exposure to the ICC. But I do think it's important to emphasize that we are probably likely before any American comes before the ICC or before any sort of any, before the, any inkling of any American comes before the ICC that, that the Taliban and Afghans would be sort of first on the list because of the vastness of, of the kind of crimes committed in Afghanistan. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this is kind of getting lost in the in the dramatic nature of thinking, oh, could Donald Rumsfeld or Dick Cheney find themselves before the ICC? Um, because that's such a dramatic and, um, you know, kind of incredible thought. Uh, what's getting lost is the practicality that really the most likely targets – uh, for the foreseeable future of the ICC, our Taliban and other kinds of figures that have allegedly committed war crimes and that the enhanced t- interrogation uh, program and torture program, uh, of which we know, you know, a lot due to the Senate committee's reports and all that stuff, um, that will, that is a s- still in the grand scheme of things, as bad as, and as horrible as it was, uh, was a small part of a much larger conflict that has innumerable mass atrocities uh, that have been committed there. And it's interesting that you, I think what you said, I think is worth kind of stressing. So you're right. The ICC's um, position is, of course, that it can investigate and prosecute U.S. citizens who have committed war crimes or alleged to have committed war crimes or crimes against humanity in Afghanistan because Afghanistan is a member state of the ICC. But that is not the position of the United States. It does not believe that... Um, that any of its citizens can ever be prosecuted uh, by the court because the United States itself has never signed up to the Rome Statute of the ICC. So there is a legal debate here. And this isn't actually new. I think we'll get into it momentarily about what the kind of reaction has been with the Trump administration. But this line has basically held through all administrations from Bush, Obama until now that the ICC cannot investigate citizens of states that are not members to the International Criminal Court. And that's a that's a legal fault line. Has the ICC itself adjudicated that question? It, it hasn't, but it's presumed to be true because of what it explicitly says in the Rome Statute. So it doesn't actually have to kind of adjudicate that question because the ICC has – in this instance, two types of jurisdictions that are, are two types of jurisdiction that are explicitly made in the Rome Statute. One is personal jurisdiction, so that means that um, any citizen of a member state of the ICC who commits war crimes or crimes against humanity anywhere in the world falls under the jurisdiction of the ICC by the fact that they are citizens of a state that is a member of the court. So, a great example of this is if 
say, uh, a Brit or a Canadian were to go and commit war crimes in Syria of sufficient gravity, the ICC would have jurisdiction over that individual because they're a citizen of the UK and Canada, and both those countries are member states of the ICC. And then it has territorial jurisdiction, right? So it has jurisdiction of any of the crimes uh, that are of sufficient gravity that occur on the territory of a member state. And Afghanistan is a member state, Mm -hmm. so it doesn't really matter that a citizen that citizens from Russia or China or the United States, none of whom have joined the ICC, would come into state territory like this and commit war crimes. If that was to transpire, the ICC would have jurisdiction over them by fact of territorial jurisdiction. Yeah. So, so the, the U.S. US argument here is, is kind of bunk. Then, I, my view is that it's bunk, but. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, I think the predominant view is that it is, you know, it is just wrong. It's legally incorrect. And the ICC's view is that it's legally incorrect. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that that would make a mockery of the ICC's uh, jurisdiction. Uh, but it is the argument that the U.S. has put forward uh, on a number of occasions. So. So, so can we walk through maybe like a scenario um, that – perhaps is on the like boundary of plausibility, but is nonetheless perhaps theoretically like plausible. So, you know, the U S ran a lot of torture <laughs> in, in um, the Bagram air place air base, for example, right. In, in, in Afghanistan, yeah. it's like sort of known as a, as a torture facility that was sanctioned at the highest levels by the Bush administration. So you have the U S president basically approved torture um, that occurred in Afghanistan, who in theory could be held criminally liable for these acts, like the individual torturers, their supervisors, the you know the, the head of the CIA at the time, Don Rumsfeld, the head of of the Department of Defense, because this was a, a, a uh, Air Force base. Like, who's criminally liable for those acts? So, the ICC in its investigation will have to determine who is basically most responsible. And generally, those are the people that it will seek for prosecution. Individuals, again, who are most responsible. Uh, It'll have to go up the chain of command. And where that begins and ends, um, you know, I'm not familiar with, you know, who was there in Bagram, uh, how far, you know, up the military chain of command into the kind of political chain of command in Washington that went. I don't know if the ICC knows how far it can kind of go up that to see that there was an order given or they should have known that this would happen, but, you know, um, but didn't do anything about it, where the kind of buck stops. I think that'll be a fascinating question um, of where that ends. It won't be, though, definitely won't be the foot soldiers. So it's not going to be the individual who entered into that room and used uh, enhanced interrogation techniques or techniques that we would consider torture. It's not going to be that individual who, who kind of implemented this policy. There has to be something systematic about the crimes that the ICC looks at. And when something's systematic, that means they're typically part of some kind of larger plan. And therefore, you have to go up the chain of command to people who are more responsible. What we do know from from reporting, though, that this was like 
from like a plan that was hatched at the White House that, you know, th- there's been so much reporting on this over the years between, you know, how the off the, the legal counsel's office, you know, colluded right. with the vice president's office and, and the White House to, you know, uh, and the Department of Defense to, to, you know, approve these, these torture techniques and, and torture in general. And it was, you know, the cabinet level and, you know, senior, very senior level officials who, who approved these, these, uh, this, this policy of torture. Yeah, and that makes this all the more fascinating in a sense, right? Because a lot of times when you have um, alleged war crimes or crimes against humanity, the perpetrators of those alleged crimes are denying it, right? And it's not in the public. And they're not saying, hey, we have this plan or policy to commit these atrocities. You don't. Whereas in this instance, um, one of the unique things is that there's – this, this stuff is, as you say, wild, uh, widely in the public. This was something that was explained publicly in legal terms. You also have a number of, you know, U.S.-based investigations into these things. So that has led some people to speculate that, you know, it might, as you say, go all the way up to, you know, the Dick Cheney's or the Donald Rumsfeld's uh, of the world. Whether the ICC thinks that is the best strategy to take to go after you know, the very, very top people who are seen as politically responsible for uh, for these, you know, for the torture programs that were, were implemented, I really can't say. There's a lot more strategy, mm-hmm. I think, in who is chosen for prosecution and at what time uh, that goes on um, and, and that should go on within the office of the prosecutor. And I think they'll have to think about that very carefully. But you're absolutely right, you know, I mm-hmm. think, um, and a lot of people have speculated that the that's exactly what could happen is it could go all the way up to the to those individuals who were in the White House. Yeah, you know, the fact that we're even having this conversation, I think, is a, a consequence of the fact, at least in part, that the Obama administration never sought any sort of justice mechanisms to deal with um, Americans who tortured people. I mean, you know, as you said earlier, you know, the, the ICC is a court of last resort and only investigates when countries are unwilling or uh, unable. And, and the U.S. You know, was unwilling to to um, launch any sort of torture prosecutions or even really any in-depth investigations from the, at the executive level. I know there was one in, in, in the Senate, but it never resulted in any sort of um, real justice. Yeah. And I think, so, I mean, this is a really interesting um, kind of dynamic between the court and the, and the United States. I don't think it is, it would be, you know, um, controversial to say that the ICC would prefer not to confront U.S. power, mm-hmm. um, that it would what it would much prefer is to engage with authorities in the United States over the last 10 years of this preliminary examination and to kind of have the, you know, the sticks and carrots as much as a court like the ICC can have, but the sticks and carrots to kind of push and negotiate for the United States to do exactly what you said, which is to investigate and prosecute these crimes uh, themselves. And so what you've actually seen is the U.S. has had um, a very long leash, a leash that is uh, on these issues, on these investigations and potential prosecutions, one that is much longer than you see in virtually all other uh, contexts, not all of them, but most of them. Yeah, Um, Yeah, I mean, mean, the Hague doesn't want to like poke the bear kind of thing, you know. Which yeah, it, it doesn't want to. Yeah, and it never wants to, right? What it actually wants to do, right? what the ICC always wants to do in general, too, is to galvanize domestic prosecutions. 
And it's, it's in its interest to do that rather than try against the odds to have its arrest warrants enforced. Mm-hmm. There is speculation, though, and I, I, you know, I've never seen these documents or I haven't been privy to these investigations, that there have actually been um, criminal investigations that took place um, under the Obama administration. Um, and I've heard them spoken about a, a number of times, I believe under a, a gentleman by the name of Durham or something like that, that oversaw them, that looked into these uh, allegations um, and really tried to ascertain whether they were prosecutable and found, I guess, that they were not. Mm-hmm. My understanding is that those investigations were never submitted to the ICC as evidence that they had been taking these allegations seriously. Mm-hmm. And I think what ends up happening, and you know, there's people like Alex Whiting at Harvard and others, American jurists and legal scholars who have who have written and made this point, is at some point the ICC ran out of rope on this preliminary examination and. Even if it didn't want to do this, you have you you kind of have to. You can't just leave it uh, on the back burner for multiple decades. You have mm-hmm. to make a decision at some point. And given what is blatantly obvious to everyone who uh, even watches what happened in Afghanistan out of the corner of their eye, it's clear that there's sufficient numbers of uh, war crimes, crimes against humanity uh, from various parties on the ground there to warrant an investigation. And so... Mm-hmm. They were put into that corner. So, so this decision by the ICC comes at a time in which John Bolton, noted foe of the International Criminal Court, is now the <laughs> National Security Advisor to the President of the United States. And uh, this is a sort of a combustible combination, to, to say the least. So John Bolton um, is someone I've sort of spent a, a career studying. I think like one of the first articles I ever wrote in my life for a journalistic enterprise was about John Bolton in the ICC oh, wow. back in like 2003 when he right. was then an undersecretary of state who yeah. took it upon himself to sort of lead an American charge, a global charge to restrict the jurisdiction of the U- of the ICC by getting countries to sign bilateral immunity agreements in which um, Americans in the jurisdiction of the country would, would not sort of face prosecution by the ICC. And if those countries refused to sign those bilateral agreements with the United States, the U.S. would retaliate by withholding military aid and, and economic aid. And I, I reported this at, at the time, but this kind of led to some really awkward uh, encounters in awkward moments, one of which was when in 2003, the the small country of Latvia was one of the few countries that were part of the, the coalition of the willing in the mm. support of the U.S. invasion and occupation of, of, of Iraq. And they refused to sign one of these uh, immunity agreements with the United States. So uh, subsequently had some of their funding cut for, for a period of time, even as military aid, I should say, cut, even as they were supporting U.S. operations in, in Iraq. And I think that anecdote demonstrates the degree to which and the priority to which John Bolton places undermining the ICC over other important American foreign policy interests. And, you know, you saw in his first big speech as National Security Advisor delivered on September 11th, he decided to devote it to undermining and undercutting the the ICC. So can you talk a little bit about what he said about the ICC and and why what he said was so, I think, alarming to, to so many people who follow these issues. Yeah. So, I mean, I think you, you, your description nailed it, right? And and the other anecdote that I think is worthwhile just recalling is about John Bolton is when 
Because the U.S. signed the Rome Statute under Bill Clinton. I think Bill Clinton's last day in pres- as a president signed the Rome Statute, um, and but didn't recommend that they become a member state, right? That they ratify it through Congress. And so when the Bush administration came in and John Bolton was there around the same time, 2002, 2003, the Bush presidency decided to unsign it, right? It was kind of a weird thing in international law. No one really knows what that means to unsign something. It basically just says, well, listen, we're not part of this at all. And John Bolton called that his proudest and happiest day in his professional career, right? And that just shows you like, this, this, uh, he's someone who just vehemently despises uh, the court and will try and do anything yeah. to kind of disrupt it. It really and, is a singular some, obsession. But now, you know, it was a singular obsession of an undersecretary of state. Yeah. Now it's the singular obsession of a national security advisor. Yeah. So it, it's just up the ante, right? And because um, as you mentioned, those bilateral immunity agreements within a couple of years of those putting. Uh, being negotiated, Condoleezza Rice actually said that those were like shooting ourselves in the foot because, as you said, they were they were going after their own allies with some of these bilateral immunity agreements and hurting diplomatic relations. Um, and there was that kind of pause under the Obama administration, which again was very skeptical towards the ICC, and I would call and others have called a permanent non-member state of the ICC, no inkling to join the court, but was cooperating with the court. Now you have John Bolton 2.0 coming in and he gives this uh, speech. And, you know, given what we've just talked about, it's almost hard to fathom how you up the anti and anti-ICC rhetoric and stance. But he succeeded uh, in spades. So he, again, as you said, has this has this speech um, and it's his first speech as national security advisor and he painted the International Criminal Court as a massive threat to the United States, uh, its role in the world, uh, its constitution, its sovereignty. I think that was its, his main core message. It's a threat to U.S. sovereignty and to its people. Um, and just really went next level with this. He said if the, Uni- if the International Criminal Court opens an investigation into Afghanistan, uh, that includes an investigation of U.S. citizens for alleged atrocities committed there, that they, the United States government will seek to prosecute and sanction ICC staff who are involved in that, as well as any companies, individuals, and countries, or whatever it may be, that cooperate in any kind of ICC process that could feasibly lead to U.S. Um, citizens being investigated and prosecuted. He said that, you know, the ICC is already dead to us. Um, so, again, he just, with with damning and really almost, um, you know, belligerent rhetoric, but in a very calm, in a very calm way that he does, just, mm-hmm. you know, ripped into the International Criminal Court as this massive threat. And it's been really interesting to hear the, to, the response. Uh, and I think it's divided really over whether... Um, whether what Bolton said was true, was true or false, and whether it is good or bad for the International Criminal Court that he was so belligerent about the threat that it apparently poses, mm-hmm. and 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 the on the it could have been good side of the ledger is that it has caused European countries to kind of rally around the court. You saw statements coming from various countries in support of of the court. After Bolton made these uh, statements, he's you know he's such a divisive and not very well liked uh, figure in in Europe for his kind of 
for 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 many mostly for for policy reasons and so they're sort of rallying uh, around the ICC as a sort of opportunity to defy Bolton it seems yeah that's one issue is that it's an opportunity for states to kind of as you say rally behind the court but there's two deeper um issues that I think people have been uh, including myself have been kind of working through the one is that by painting the ICC as this massive threat to the United States government. What John Bolton inadvertently did was paint the ICC as this very uh, strong, threatening, powerful institution at at the exact same time when actually a lot of people think that it's a much weaker institution than it used to be. So he almost granted it a sense of... um, I don't know what you would call it, but a sense of presence on the international stage and a, through the ability to threaten, you know, the United States in any way, he gave it that image of being this kind of, not a paper tiger, but a full blown tiger on the mm-hmm. international, in the international arena. And so people have said, well, that actually lends credence to the court. And the second thing that is related is that during you know, during the Bush administration and uh, and when John Bolton was, you know, um, getting countries to sign these bilateral immunity agreements um, and they, you know, they, they had the, the, the American Service Members Protection Act, which suggested that the U.S. would use actual force to repatriate any citizens that ended up at the ICC. Um, he did the same thing then too. He made the ICC seem very, you know, threatening and kind of granted legitimacy in a lot of corners of the world um, in a way, again, that I think was inadvertent. And relations, for example, between African states and the ICC were probably at their best during that time, during mm-hmm. the first years of the court and the worst years between the United States uh, and and the ICC. Then when Obama came in and the relations got better and you had more security council referrals and a more positive relationship and more cooperative relationship, one of the things, and I don't know how causal this is, but one of the things that did happen was the relationship between African states and the ICC got significantly worse over time. Mm -hmm. They sort of perhaps felt like they, they lost a degree of ownership over it because these, uh, these early ICC cases were like self referrals, like Uganda invited the ICC to investigate like Joseph Kony, whereas the security council imposed a uh, investigation on Sudan for crimes in Darfur. Exactly. And Libya and other places, right. That, I mean, it's a longer story about the African mm-hmm. diplomacy with regards to the Security Council. But the U.S. started to have this very positive, engaged relationship with the ICC, uh, both through Washington as well as through New York at the U.N. Security Council. And I think some states said, well, how is it that a permanent non-member state that isn't interested in committing itself to the Rome Statute and to be a mem- member of the court is having so much influence over where the court investigates, who the court maybe prosecutes, etc. That's how they saw it. So the better relationship between the U.S. and uh, the ICC overlapped with a worsening relationship between African states and the court. Mm -hmm. And so some people are saying or suggesting, well, okay, well, if Bolton comes out in his blistering way, which isn't particularly popular amongst diplomats anyways, then maybe maybe it'll have the effect of, again... 
um, legitimizing the court and giving the space for its member states to take more ownership over over the court, over supporting the court, and as you say, rallying behind uh, the ICC too. So, so let me put this final question to you then. How will you know which way um, the sort of pendulum is, is, is swinging? What are you going to be looking for, looking to in, in the next you know, few months that will suggest to you one way or another how this will, will shape? I mean, it's so hard to predict with the International Criminal Court. Uh, my assumption is, of course, the investigation will be um, opened that um, over the next few months, my guess, honestly, is nothing will happen. The investigation will be open, but there won't be any warrants uh, issued. If they are issued, perhaps they'll be issued under seal, right? So privately, but it'll take some time. I, and I think that it behooves the prosecutor to be very strategic and sensitive. There's definitely a need for justice in Afghanistan, but it's not. it doesn't help anyone when you issue arrest warrants that can't be enforced and that have little chance of being enforced. And actually the prosecutor has said in her case kind of selection strategy paper that one of the things they consider is issuing arrest warrants where they have a high degree of being enforced and therefore lead to justice. And I think that's important because Mm -hmm. there's nothing more disappointing to victims and survivors who want criminal justice than an arrest warrant that isn't, um, that isn't enforced. And I think the prosecutor is going to be very careful, uh, take her time. So I don't think we'll see arrest warrants in the next couple months. But again, like I say, uh, inter- the world of international criminal justice is nothing if not unpredictable. There's fits and starts all the time. Um, there's things that erupt and then there's things that calm down. And it's really hard to know when when or, uh, when it won't happen. But for sure, it'll be fascinating to watch. And it'll be fascinating to watch how states you know, manage this now very strained relationship between Washington and The Hague. All right. Well, Mark, thank you so much for your time. This was, uh, you know, we'll see how this shakes out. Yeah, I'm looking forward to finding out, like everyone. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Mark. Like I said, he is uh, one of my go-to ICC people. Uh, I'm I'm, I'm sort of an ICC nerd myself, so it's uh, always good to have these kind of uh, nerd outs. Uh, As I mentioned at the start of the show, please do consider becoming a premium subscriber. I so appreciate it. It really helps uh, keep the lights on around here. It covers some of the costs. And also, as I said, you get some special rewards, including, but not limited to, my list of social media handles to follow on Twitter and Instagram for interesting you know, foreign policy news, my news clips service. It's called Don's Digest. It goes out to a bunch of global development and global affairs insiders every single morning. I sort of painstakingly, uh, my partner and I go through uh, the news of the day and, and feed it to you very early in the morning and bonus episodes got some good bonus episodes i'll be posting some new bonus episodes too very shortly for those of you who are uh, already premium subscribers all right we'll see you next time bye